to the podcast he and your host and canadian larry parsons that's me that's the voice you're listening to right now we are going to review six movies that are both sci-fi and horror kind of at the same time and uh then we're going to rank them from our least favorite to our most and uh it's going to be a whole lot of fun i uh talk you through it as if this wasn't the 200 and something episode and we didn't all know the rules of the game I'm going to continue that by saying there will be swears, there will be spoilers for the movies discussed, but it's going to be worth feeding your ears. If you have feedback, you can send it to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca, and if you need something to feed your ears in the two weeks in between episodes, do consider checking out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, hosted by my friend Jason Dubray, and check out the Terror Table podcast, which is local to me and friends of mine, and worthy of your time. But enough of me yammering on and on, except to say, Rankin Review's website is up and again, so fans of Rankin Review, please tell people I need to get visible again, I need traffic on the site, because I have essentially disappeared for a few years there, so now I'm back, and I need that extra push, so help me with that extra push, none more of this, no more introductions, let's do the podcast, thank you for your time. Mr. Matthew Risling, regular contributor to Rank and Review, is back on the show. We're doing this over the computer, so uh, hopefully uh, we everyone will bear with us. Technology, baby, technology. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to hate my voice when it gets Skyped in, uh, and two, I talk over you a lot because of the Skype lag, so apologies to all of your listeners in advance for that. <laughs> we have this to look forward to, but it's going to be a high-quality episode because... Well, I don't know. I think it's a strangely strong, if a little bit random, list of movies that we have here. Yeah, I was surprised by how much I liked almost everything on this, and even the the bottom of the the bottom of the pack. I didn't think was bad. Like I, I, uh, you know, we've watched some bad movies for rank and review, and nothing in this would would qualify for that. 
Well, we'll definitely get to progeny when we get to progeny, but uh, I might make the case that it is enjoyably bad. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we'll get to it. The theme, I guess, is vaguely sci-fi horrors. Um, although, I mean, Underwater is uh, supposedly a modern, just straight monster movie, but let's call it close enough. Yeah, I, I think it's like Deep Star 6. It takes place in an underwater research base that uses science. It's got yeah. fiction in it. Uh, and guest stars Cthulhu, so you always you always look forward to that in your movies. Yeah, it's always a shout-out, friend of the show. Um so it doesn't get the same recognition of say horror and comedy as being, you know, the you know, peanut butter and jelly of genre mixing, but where do you land on sci fi horror? Do you think they complement each other and if so why? Um so it's really hard to say. Uh when when you gave me this random list, which you chose for me, if yeah. I recall, um I wasn't exactly looking forward to it. I, I was more interested in the last list you had given me, which was the crazy 80s, right. uh, because I like the madness of 80s movies. And this one, I was a little bit putting off watching just because I, I wasn't too excited about any of it. But as it turns out, I liked everything on this list to some extent. So uh, maybe I like sci-fi horror. Are you getting softer in your old age, brother? <laughs> Well, I will say I uh, I didn't find very much of this to be all that horrific. Right. Well, and that's the sort of mediation that these types of movies have to do. It seems like the same thing happens with horror comedies. Usually one genre wins. It either becomes a comedy or it becomes a horror movie at some point. And mm-hmm. I find with sci-fi horror, almost all of the time, the sci-fi wins. But the most memorable ones, the aliens, as it were, or the invasion of the body snatchers from 78, in those cases, I find the horror wins. <laughs> yeah. I, when I was a little kid, I was really, not really into, but I liked Disney's The Black Hole. Yeah. And I think that might have been as close as sci-fi and horror have come to mashing up uh, like perfectly evenly for me. That one I thought... Because it was like, it's like the classic Victorian ghost ship, but it was on a spaceship. And I was really, there was that one with Sam Neill that was... Event Horizon. Yeah, I thought that would be like that, but it wasn't. Anyway, what I'm saying is I'm still chasing the dragon for something that I think is that, as as even uh, as that. And and this, I would say, was much more on the sci-fi side than the horror. I think we need to maybe find a name for this sort of subgenre it's almost like the twilight zone type of movies they're not exactly scary but they're kind of about something and they kind of sit with you they kind of like stir your imagination and your kind of anxiety but without being necessarily a full-blooded horror movie because there's lots of movies like this. I think Get Out, that Jordan Peele movie you and I talked yeah. about, is very much that. Like, I, I'm not terrified by that movie. I love it, and I do think it kind of earns its horror, you know, genre. But it it didn't keep me up at night necessarily because I was scared by it. <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of that other one by Jordan Peele, um, Us? the most recent one. Oh no, nope, uh, nope, uh, which. I think I liked it more than everybody else, but right. I really liked it. But it mostly it it left me thinking about it, and then I just kind of felt bad for a while. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, and that's it. I think initially I was a little bit cold by it, but uh, I couldn't get it out of my head. And then when I watched it again, I decided, no, actually, I really do like this. I just, I wasn't, I didn't know what I was watching the first time I was watching the movie, I guess is the best description. And for some of these movies, I think a similar case could be made. Um, is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction before I list off these movies and we delve into some sci-fi horror? No, I think we should just delve. Let's delve. All right, we're going in reverse alphabetical order for no reason other than I felt like it. We're going to talk about a bizarre movie called Vivarium. We're going to talk about an action monster picture called Underwater. We're going to talk about an alien impregnation picture, I guess, The Progeny. We're going to look at the modern version of The Invisible Man. We're going to talk about the 1992 version of Body Snatchers from Abel Ferrara. And we'll finish things off with Annihilation um, with Natalie Portman um, from the director of Ex Machina and the writer of 28 Days Later. Mr. Matthew Risling, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, here we go. Welcome to Yonder, a wonderful development. It has all you'd need and all you'd want. Number nine. Number nine is not a starter home. This house is forever. Leave for a boy. Do you have children? No. It's not exactly what we're looking for. That guy was so strange. Yeah. Wait. No, no, I don't think this is the right way. Yeah, this is the way we came in. Number nine again. Did we just do some kind of loop? How if we just... Want me to drive? Such a joke. Because I think this is not possible. We can't make turns like this over and over. We have gone this way, Tom. Oh my god. Hello? 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 What's happening? Maybe they'll let us go. What if they don't come? What are we supposed to do? Should we just sit here? And we wait to die. So, Vivarium is directed by a man named Lorcan Finnegan. I've not seen his other films, but apparently, thematically, they're sort of similar. Is it like they have these couples that are kind of cold, put in environments that are kind of cold, and fill the audience with anxiety? Um, Vivarium does make me curious about his uh, other works. But it's an exercise in uncanny valley and aesthetics. This uh, young couple go to look at a, a possible new place to live and are led by this possibly creepy real estate agent into... So I, think, I think that real estate agent was the best performance on this entire list. <laughs> he is great, but he is so scary as that maybe the appropriate response is to flee the room. <laughs> like... <laughs> But obviously we want to go with the premise. He's going to sell them on this these this house. He drives them to this house listed as number nine. But it's completely identical to all these like ugly green row houses in this neighborhood that is like confusing. And I all every, every street's identical. Every house is identical. And they're not into it. And they're not into it right away. But they're polite about it in the sort of way that, you know, polite society is. And they end up... actually... Sorry. No. Uh, making me a little bit uncomfortable because so I didn't read him as scary I read him as like just socially awkward mm -hmm. like 
he he couldn't read cues his voice intonations were all wrong and i thought they were kind of being dicks to him like they were they were kind of laughing at him to his face right he offered them champagne and strawberries and or champagne and the wife says no i'm driving and then strawberries and the husband says no i'm driving yeah. and he doesn't understand and i'm like oh these guys are being dicks to this poor <laughs> weirdo but they end up getting abandoned there and they find out that this neighborhood they cannot leave and the the title of the movie starts to make sense like clearly they have been trapped in this place be it a parallel dimension or a spaceship or whatever the hell it is and um first of all it seems like they're just being studied and eventually they are tasked to raise a child coincidentally in the episode following this one i'm going to be doing a review of john carpenter's take on the village of the damned which is based off of the midwich cuckoos and uh that's the same idea of the cuckoo bird landing in some another bird's nest getting rid of the eggs and putting a new egg in there and having another bird raise their child kind of a creepy idea and the movie was not at all subtle. No, it opens right? Before, with that. Like, while the credits are rolling, we actually see, like, nature documentary footage of the cuckoo kicking these little featherless chicks out of the nest. Yeah. So, I think the movie is a victory in performance and aesthetics. But as we were talking about in the introduction, I don't think I found, other than one particular scene, I found the movie to be that scary. I found it cold, I found it uncanny, and I found it, like, uh, uncomfortable, but not scary. But I do think it's on to something, and as far as, like, a Twilight Zone episode movie, it's definitely really good at being that. Um, uh, in the end, what does it all mean? Well, I, I guess that is to be discussed. I liked it. I don't think I loved it, but I definitely liked it, is where I'm starting on the very <laughs> Uh, so I was I, I just watched it yesterday, um, and I had very strong feelings. So I started going online and looking at reviews, and I think probably nobody liked it as much as me. All of the reviews, the people, some people really hated it, oh. um, and I recommended it to my cousin uh, earlier today, and he watched it, and then I was just answering texts, <laughs> trying. He, he, I think felt like I had wasted his time. Oh. I was trying to explain why it was good. Uh, I thought it was great. I, I uh, wasn't, I wasn't, again, all that thrilled to watch it. Like, I wasn't going in. I'd never heard of it, but I wasn't going in with any particular expectations. I think we need a new word. Um, so, you know, like, if you watch a comedy and you laugh out loud, you could say it's funny. But if you watch a comedy and you never laugh out loud, but there's this sort of slow burn enjoyment, you call it amusing? Yes. Whatever the equivalent of amusing is for for horror, right? Like, there's no points where it's scary, but it... It's unsettling. And boring it becomes. It's, like, claustrophobic, and and it's like hell. It's, it's, it was just, like, an awful psychological uh, feeling. Yeah. You glitched out just for a second there, but I think I caught what you, the gist of it. Uh, the purgatory thing that starts the thing, the movie is interesting enough, but the wild card is the child. 
Uh, I clocked it the first time we were saying how awkward the exchange was with the real estate agent that he parroted them a couple times. She would say something and he would spit it back at her and it reads really strange. But when you introduce this little kid, he does that all the time. And the boy's voice is accomplished by using Jesse Eisenberg and Emma Jones Poots and the actor who played the real estate agent's voices and pitch shifting it. So it sounds different every time the kid talks. And it is cumulatively a really, un again, unnerving, but not exactly scary. Until one particular scene where Imogene Poots, who, unlike her, her husband, uh, at least tries to connect to the child to understand, if not him, what the hell is going on, what the purpose of all of this is tricks him into giving away more than he's supposed to. When he disappears during the day, who does he talk to? Show me an impression of who you talk to. And the kid wolfs out in front of her and his throat starts bulging and he starts making all these notes. And it's the one scene in the movie where all of a sudden my back straightened up was like, oh no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think the movie could have used a little bit more of that, honestly. <laughs> I don't. I think it. I think it was just enough. Like uh, I can't imagine. I because I was trying to think about it uh, when I was trying to defend this movie to my cousin, and I couldn't. Like the thing that he wanted, that a lot of the people that don't like it wanted, was more of an explanation or more to happen, more of a revelation. But I think the whole point is you can't get that ever. So, like, there is this scene where the husband, Jesse Eisenberger, the boyfriend, is freaking out. He's spending all of his time digging this hole in the yard, which is a whole subplot. Uh, and she decides that she's going to think her way out of it. And so she starts spending more time with the kid. And she says to him in one scene, like, you're, you're a puzzle and I'm going to figure you out. And I think that's like, that's what the viewer wants but I don't think she's any more capable of it than the Ren is of figuring out the cuckoo. And like, I don't think, like the point is there are things that humans just can't figure out. Like, are these aliens? Are they demonic? Are they dimensional beings? We don't know because the Ren never knows what the cuckoo is. It's yeah. something that sort of has its number and there's nothing you can do about it. Well, and I also, I think it's another one of these cases, like what answer would we accept first of all? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah i the i the answer we want will never be the same as the answer we get but if if you're frustrated by the lack of answers i think the other thing you can latch on to is sort of the metaphor of suburbia as purgatory you know uh, you're a young couple so what you have to do is buy this house and spend your life paying for this house and live in this perfect corner of suburbia and doing anything other than that is somehow breaking the, the contract of society and uh this sort of locks them into this suburban nightmare and uh not only is it like terrible for them but Initially, it was a goal. They came here, quote-unquote, voluntarily, looking for an ideal life. <laughs> and this is what that is, when you sort of squish it. Even the raising of the child, it's interesting how it's condensed. The kid goes from a baby to a full-grown man in a few months. And uh, so it, it sort of condenses that whole experience. You buy the house, you raise the kid, and before you know it, your life is over and you're buried in the backyard. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, that's. I think that's a common reading, and that's. Uh, I think it's a completely workable Valid. reading. Um, I think you could. This is what one of those movies where you can project a lot onto it because you can easily read this as a comment on suburbia. You can very easily read this as a feminist horror movie where she becomes like the. She is made to be the figure of mother uh, who is like just drained and eventually buried alive by this awful thing um i again i tend to read it as more like the indifference of nature like just like nature is a horror movie to so many animals and there's no explanation there's just there's just what it is right the when the you know you have what do they call a cuckoo it's a something uh, parasite a brood parasite you know like once a brood parasite gets in the nest there's nothing you can do and there's no understanding it um and so for me it was more like it's just bad luck i i don't know i don't know how else to put it because it didn't even really seem like they were intending to buy in suburbia the they went into that place the guy says i want to show you a place they didn't want to go but he kind of pressured them, and by the time they drive into that that housing complex, they already know they don't want it. It's over for them. Yeah. As soon as they're and, in there, yeah, they're 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 lost for sure. And I I think the moment is they pass the billboard of the the housing company, and it says your home forever. <laughs> That's it. That's where they are. Yeah, your, your home, home forever. forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Again, I like these weird moments too when they finally break down and attack the kid and he lifts the sidewalk and crawls underneath it like an insect all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, and he lifts it as though it were like lifting a blanket on your bed and crawling underneath the bed. That was that was just great. Perfect, like, surreal episode. You can never predict what's going to happen in the next scene, which is the real strength of the movie. Whether or not you feel like it goes anywhere, whether or not you find it... I understand people finding it frustrating, but I think that that's sort of a strength of the movie. It kind of makes you want to go back to it and sort of, like, figure it out. Um, I think what might work against it is just the coldness and the ugliness of it. No matter how you interpret it, it's not a feel-good picture. (laughs) And also, I said it before, it's also boring, which I think is part of its greatness, but I think that's the reason why people don't like it as much as they don't. Because well, I, do, I don't even think it cracks 50% on Metacritic. Well, that's, or no on Rotten Tomatoes. That's unkind, but that's what I was talking about at the beginning. When I was, so it's like a victory of aesthetics. The whole uncanny ick of the environment and the vibe of the movie, in order to accomplish it that well, you have to take your time. And mm-hmm. that's the trade-off. And if you go with it, it'll work with you. But if you're, like, expecting thrills and chills and, like, a jump scare movie, that's not what this is about. Yeah. Is there uh, anything else you want to say about Vivarium? Or? There's lots to say, no. I'm sure. I mean, I, the thing is, like, I could have a conversation just about Vivarium for two hours because <laughs> there's so much to say. Uh, one, one thing I will say is I, I don't know if you've... I can't remember or how to pronounce the guy's name, but the movie The Lobster, mm-hmm. it's... Uh, Yorgis something or other, yes. Yeah, if you can save me here. Uh, it, it reminded me of one of his movies. Uh, and it left me feeling about the same as I felt when I left The Lobster, which was one of my favorite movies that I watched last year. Yeah. Well, and again, I I like it because it, 
it's weird, it's out there, and it's sort of an almost untangible feel to these types of movies that you're talking about. So I'm finally getting what everyone else sees in David Lynch in other filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, I, I still can't like David Lynch that much, but I kind of, I get that there are, like he's got a certain vibe that he hits. I don't like David Lynch, but I like his influence on other creators maybe. <laughs> Yeah, that could be a way to put it. On a scale from one to ten, how bad's my rig? Ten. We drilled to the bottom of the ocean, and we don't know what came out. Gotta get to the station. How did we even get there? We walk. We're just gonna walk with insufficient oxygen across the bottom of the ocean. You don't know what's out there. Worst idea ever! What was that? Turn your lights off. So some years back, you and I did a Water Monsters episode, and we talked about Deep Star Six, <laughs> and uh, it was very much a similar premise to uh, Underwater. This is obviously a much more modern, updated, uh, and a much more, uh, I think, geared in, tense, visceral, sort of nerve-shredding type of experience than uh, <laughs> Deep Star Six, but... I do think, you know, between that and Deep Rising and this, that underwater monster trilogy is is pretty solid. I understand that this movie is a beast that is completely built of pieces of other movies. Like, <laughs> you, if you've seen Alien, if you've seen any kind of creature feature set underwater, you know the dynamics. You know, there's a disaster, there's a ragtag group of characters that need to get from point A to point B, and they're going to get whittled down to a handful, if, if any, survive at all. And it is completely paint-by-numbers in that respect. I will concede that point. But I also think it's kind of awesome. <laughs> like, uh, it, it does not give you any time to stop and think about what's going on. Through the opening credits, you get a very basic setup of the building of the site and how mysterious stuff happened. Then you have Kristen Stewart brushing her teeth and... The facility starts falling apart around her and she's running around making these like choices and trying to save people. And, and you just stay in that sort of place of, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, sustained through the whole movie. The director, um, sorry, William Eubank uh, has done a couple other sci fi movies and I'm, I'm a fan of his work. But I do think technically this is the best thing that he's done as far as the execution of it. Because I think under a weaker director, the cracks in this would be much more obvious. This is my type of movie. Like, I like a monster movie. This is where my, this is my kind of thing. So it was sort of playing to my likes. But I am going to give an enthusiastic thumbs up to Underwater as a fun, visceral monster movie. If you like monster movies, 
this is a good one. That's where I'm starting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I so it's we're about a week into the new year now. I watched this on New Year's Eve, as you know, because I was texting you. <laughs> That's right. The first movie from this list that uh, I watched, um, and I, I didn't. So the first scene is Kristen Stewart at a sink and there's this voiceover of her talking about whatever it is I'm like oh shit a voiceover that's never a good thing and then the movie starts and then it doesn't stop like right the the place starts imploding she has to run to an elevator shaft they pick up survivors and it just like from I I don't want to compare it to Mad Max Fury Road too much except for like there's no boring bit before there's the action and it is all I don't know if I would say it's rather dumb it's not super intelligent but it's fun start to finish well and I think it's not really pretending to be anything but what it is I mean it's straight faced it's not winking at you and I definitely appreciate that but everybody's playing their roles TJ Miller is the comic relief character and he knows it and on some level the other characters know it you know the captain of the facility is going to have a noble death before the end of the the movie. Like that is just going to happen. <laughs> but I don't know. There's there's a lot to be said for execution here. Yeah, and like the a couple of things that I liked is uh, the first one is she meets up with her one friend. Um, they get into an elevator and so he's like the, we know that she's going to survive at least in, until the end or we can be pretty sure he seems like he's going to be a main guy but when like they're way at the bottom of the ocean so pressure is an issue and air is an issue and stuff um, and they have to go as a, as a group they meet there's like six of them uh, they all get together and they have to go along the ocean floor and get somewhere and there's a scene where his the her the first guy she meets, his mask cracks and he implodes. Yeah. And it just like, I, you, your audience can't see it, but I'm snapping my fingers. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. Like he's just dead. Like, he's there's gone. Just this puff of blood, and that's the kind of movie this is. Like anybody can go at any time, and it won't necessarily like not every death is going to be big and operatic. It's going to be just quick and pointless. Well. But it was set up a little bit, too, because when he was handing out the equipment, he noticed there was something off about that helmet, and he deliberately chose it for himself. So, oh, maybe I missed that bit. Yeah, uh, I, unless I'm inventing that, but I, I do think that there was a beat where he was like, there's, there's something off here, but he chose it for himself. So it was a little bit noble, but uh, again, there's no illusion about the fact that like everyone's going to come out of this okay. <laughs> like, there's also an interesting... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, just I was a little slightly disappointed. It seemed like the captain had an interesting backstory, uh, and I kind of was getting the feeling that he knew more than he was letting on, but that didn't really seem to pay off. No. Unless, speaking of scenes that I misremember, I don't know if you're remembering anything. Well, it would make sense. Like, they talk about during the opening credits that there was weird stuff that went on during the construction. And he'd obviously been there since the beginning. But how, what he knew or if he knew how much danger they were going to be in. But I wanted to talk about this when we get to the creature design. Because it's an interesting choice of the movie. There are these sort of little, I don't know... Uh, 
creature from the Black Lagoon swimming around guys. But at the end of the movie, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we see what is kind of unmistakably a huge Cthulhu oh, monster. It's the giant Cthulhu monster. And that, that seems to be a very deliberate choice. And I was curious what you thought of that. <laughs> Um, actually, I I don't have a ton of notes because it was New Year's and I was drinking, so right. I, couldn't, I couldn't write at the same time. Um, but I one of my notes was that uh, I kind of think the movie would have been better without any monsters. Oh yeah, like an underwater survival horror. All of the best scenes were oxygen and pressure related. I don't think they really needed it. They certainly don't think they needed a giant Cthulhu monster. Uh, it wasn't bad. Like, if if that's your jam, I it didn't really kick me out of it. I right. just didn't... I It didn't seem special to me. It seemed a little CGI. Well, um, on, he, on one hand, I love it because I love H.P. Lovecraft and it was just like a left-field choice where it was all of a sudden guest-starring Cthulhu. <laughs> it was just like... It, it, it had impact in that way. But in another way, it was like, well, I guess that saved them time on creature design, <laughs> right? <laughs> or I would have almost preferred when they were, I think it was in the captain's office, they were, it was one of the rooms that they went in where there had been people, but there was a postcard or a picture of mermaids, like old-fashioned classical style. Yeah. And I would have almost preferred if the monsters were just mermaids it was like more surreal that way if there right. has to be something um but I, I wouldn't say it's a strike it's just kind of a missed opportunity well i i invested in the monster side of things because that's who i am as a person but i thought it was kind of a smart idea like, again i go back and forth but like the thing that hangs up a lot of Lovecraft adaptations is getting into the cultists and getting into the lore of the Cthulhu creature and the the, the sleepless old ones, la 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 la. And uh, if you're not into the lore, it, you can just sort of feel your butt getting numb. This movie doesn't bother with any of that. If you know that that's Cthulhu, great. If not, it's a big underwater bug. And there's there's something when you see the size of that thing on top of all the little army of little guys, you realize like <laughs> the nature of the problem that. They they were up against it was pretty substantial <laughs> yeah there was i mean there's something in the bigness of it um i so i totally agree with you uh i i think i've read everything by hp lovecraft or if not pretty close to everything uh, i think his big thing is the lore like his the best of hp lovecraft is not hp lovecraft's writing it's things that it's inspired um without the lore i don't know that the monsters really work particularly well um like i i i don't know that it added anything that it was a big humanoid with tentacles coming out of its mouth if you don't know that it's cthulhu it doesn't matter it's a big monster so mm. on that maybe it should matter more i guess <laughs> but they did better than meg too as far as monsters at the bottom of the trench yeah, so I haven't I haven't seen that one. What? Um, yeah, it's weird. I meant to catch it in an IMAX, but I just never got around to it. I mean, that's the lowest praise I could say for underwater. It's better use of your time than Meg Two. Ouch. I I feel um, like I, I'm making I, excuses for the movie though, but I mean, I don't think there's any really weak component necessarily. The script moves incredibly quickly. There's no weak links in the cast. Like I was a bit weirded out that 
how much I liked T.J. Miller's character because one, I found him annoying in the past, and two, this may be his last big budget movie since uh, all of the sex criminal allegations. Yeah, he so got canceled. Weird to be rooting for the guy. <laughs> well, I think he's like legitimately mentally ill, <laughs> but uh, uh, not that that's an excuse for his bad behavior. But I think this is like. It's his Baby Driver. Baby Driver was the last movie where we were allowed to like Kevin Spacey. <laughs> this was the last movie where we were allowed to like T.J. Miller. Right? I, I think it's the last movie that he's getting. Right. Well, I think he did the job well. And uh, he was comic relief, but they did add a little bit more to him. Like, uh, he had his little lucky bunny rabbit that he gave to the, the other lady who he saw freaking out. And, you know, that's... Gave him a little bit more personality than than just punchy one-liners that are undercutting the stakes, you know. Well, and the uh, the stuffed bunny rabbit was one of the few survivors That's of the right. movie. It did make it up to the surface. <laughs> Um, and the, it, it, it sort of recognizes the, these scenes in movies when he has to go run an errand and he bequeaths the rabbit to her. It's like this self-awareness of character. Like, I'm a non-essential character and I'm taking a risk, so I'm likely going to die now. <laughs> and that was a pretty good scene, too, where him and another expendable guy went out and it was like this creepy underwater scene and then something jumped up at them and it cuts back to our characters that are in in the submersible or in the base somewhere and then the two expendable characters come back you know like oh those guys made it they're so happy <laughs> they're gonna make it to the end you guys they're gonna make it but that's all you need just a little bit of subversion here and there i mean it is a formula picture i'm not going to pretend that it's not a formula picture I guess another thing, maybe one of the last things I'll say about Kristen Stewart herself. I have never watched even a minute of the Twilight franchise, <laughs> but I, I know that it's been like, it's this really mocked thing. You either hate it or you were a teenage girl when it came out, right? Like it was it's one, of, one of these things. But I, I would love to be able to make fun of her and Robert Pattinson, but uh, I've seen her and Robert Pattinson in enough movies outside of the Twilight movies that however bad they might be, I think that they're decent actors. <laughs> she does the job well here. Yeah, I thought she was fine. Uh, I I was kind of rooting for her to make it. I, I don't know. She, she, to me, was like the Cthulhu monster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think if, if she had been cast with somebody else, I wouldn't have minded, but she did a good job. Um, I, for me, the setting was the star of it. I think that's why I was so caught up in it, the setting and the pacing. Also, I like underwater stuff. I like scuba diving. I like the feeling of, you know, you your focus you can only see like you lose your peripheral vision you lose a lot of your senses and you know it's just a good setting for horror yeah no um i think it overperformed for me uh, as a movie unfortunately it underperformed incredibly at the box office uh, and i think this director deserves better because i think it was super solid and i would like him to get a budget again because uh i'm on board for underwater <laughs> Yeah, actually, I think that might be a, 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 an unacknowledged theme of this list of movies, is I think basically all of them were box office flops. For the and most a lot part, of them, yeah. Um, I guess, well, Invisible Man, I suppose, wasn't a flop. I was going to say um, Invisible Man, I think, is the only one that was a certified moneymaker out of this. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there, it's definitely at least five movies that deserved to make money at least four movies that deserve to make a lot more than they made agreed 
but I think we've covered this one. After hoping and praying, Craig and Sherry Burton's dream We're gonna have a baby. has just come true. Can you believe it? No, I can. I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> I figure conception was about seven weeks ago. Isn't that great? But it's nothing like they expected. I got the results back from the fertility lab. It's like one in a million that I could get you pregnant. Because this baby is definitely... Never saw anything quite like that before. What is it? Not of this world. That's impossible. Craig! Now... What's inside her is not a normal fetus. It's moving inside me. I felt it. The only way to save themselves... I need you to think back to that night. Something happened. ...is to face the terror within. So Brian Usna is the director of Progeny. He's sort of <laughs> Stuart Gordon's familiar. He, he worked a lot with Stuart Gordon. Stuart Gordon, you'll notice, has a screenplay credit uh, on this particular movie. And uh, I enjoy Usna for his excessiveness. He and Stuart Gordon sort of share this. They, they make movies for super low budget so that they can maintain a level of control. And that control usually means gratuitous sex and violence. And sometimes it really pays off. A guilty pleasure of mine is Return of the Living Dead Part 3. That's Brian Usen. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. He did the Dentist movies. <laughs> Have you ever seen the Dentist movies? <laughs> no, I don't think I ever saw those. Yeah. Uh, they're all very cheap, they're all over the top, they're kind of trashy, but a lot of the time they have charm to them. I, I don't know that this one can be said that it, that it has a lot of charm to it. I did a whole episode at the beginning of the season about alien abduction. I think it could be a really, well it is a really interesting subject to me, and it could be really, really terrifying. But this movie is handled in such a tactless manner that it, it it's... It's trying to, it wants us to take it seriously, but it's impossible to take it seriously, which puts you in this really weird place. And for me personally, aggravating the things is I think that Arnold Vosloo, who's playing our lead, and Lindsay Krauss, who is playing his psychiatrist, are two of the worst working professional actors in the fucking business. They are really wow. They are terrible. Like, I, Vassilo was famous. He's a South African uh, actor. He got famous for being the villain in The Mummy, but the movie was largely he was a special effect in it. Largely, uh, he, other than that, he, he plays like bad guys in Jean Claude Van Damme movies. He's got this look to him. That he looks like intimidating and a bad guy, but I've never been knocked over him as an actor. And Lindsay Kraus. I don't know, had all of the emotions drained out of her from her marriage to David Mamet or something, but I have always found her flat as hell. And uh, they're, they're asked to, to be the dramatic weight of this movie. And not to just be mean to them, I think good actors look bad in this movie. I usually like Wilfred Brimley. I think it's a pretty... <laughs> past his best before date uh, performance from him. I think maybe Brad Dorif is the only one who comes out with a little bit of dignity as far as the performances. There's something so tactically amateur and icky about it that it's, it's hard to enjoy. But at the same time, 
I was kind of laughing at the gratuitous, over-the-top insanity of the movie's very existence. There's something memorable, tactilely, viscerally memorable about the movie, but I don't think I could go so far as to say good. <laughs> so yeah, It seems like you and I had, uh, had different opinions of certain things. First okay. of all, on Wilfred Brimley. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I would say that his scenes were some of the only ones that I kind of enjoyed, just because I, I like watching him talk. I don't know. I, it's like he might as well be doing his one of his oatmeal commercials from the nineteen nineties. Talking about diabetes. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I think he was worse in this. He's right. just Wilford Brimley. Like, okay. He, he's just. Um, I didn't necessarily think our protagonist. I, I didn't think he's as as bad an actor as you do apparently okay. I thought he was kind of boring um, like for, for me this movie was just really boring um, it felt like it was very 90s uh, you could tell it was X-Files era uh, back from when um, alien abduction stuff was really popular um, I, I in my notes I say it was like the movie Fire in the Sky, but boring and with full frontal nudity in a couple of places, which was, I mean, that's something. Um, there were scenes that wanted to be over the top. So, for example, the woman getting inseminated, um, you don't quite see her getting penetrated by the probe, but just about. And right. that, like, it seems like, um, what was that one in our last review with that little worm thing that lived on the brain back of damage the brain damage like if somebody had a brain damage sense like that seemed seemed like it belonged in brain damage and a director that was having more fun with it could have had more fun with it or a director that was better at horror could have made it scarier but there was something kind of movie of the week about it for me in other using of films, the violence is over top and the nudity is over the top, but there's something goofy about the movie. Like the from frame one, there's just an odd goofy vibe. So you just kind of like, okay, movie, what else you got? But because this movie is taking itself so seriously, it it, it it's dis there's this discontinuity between the the alien gooey scenes and the nudity and. There's a scene where she, like, sticks a coat hanger between her legs. <laughs> I'm just like, was that really, <laughs> like... <laughs> and I, I, actually, that was a moment where it was a real record scratch for me, because, like, I think coat hanger abortion is more of an analogy. It's a term. <laughs> something that people would actually do, and, like, literally a coat hanger. Um, and when you're yeah. shooting that, like... Everybody on set's got to be like, we've pushed this pretty fucking far. You guys, like, come on. <laughs> uh, um, she has, there's all these scenes that are setting up where, like, sorry, I haven't really talked plot. <laughs> this woman is, the couple is pregnant, and the woman is experiencing strange visions and symptoms during the pregnancy, and they become convinced that aliens have impregnated her. And it's pretty clear that they're right. There's no are they or aren't they. Sorry. Oh, you just missed that. Uh, I think before that we learn 
that they had both lost time. They'd both lost about 20 minutes on the night of conception, and this is going to be important for the for the ending. Yeah, they remember the strange night, and he times that to the conception date. So there's reasons, and they're always right. And the movie's not playing of whether or not they're crazy or not. Other people might not believe their story, but we know that they're on the level. So, and the movie's constantly giving us hypnotism scenes and dream sequences where it's eking out more of what happened or just giving excuse for like a really grotesque, you know, birthing scene, <laughs> you know, and uh, I get the feeling like the, I don't know, it's it's the, it's the eyes behind these images. It's like, they feel like this is kind of like awesome. Look at these awesome gratuitous special effects and they're not treating it with the emotional gravity and respect that I think, you know, it deserves. The fear of pregnancy and the fear of something going wrong and, like, this could be mined for a very serious and very terrifying horror movie. But that's not what they set out to do here. They're like, tits and gore. Tits and gore. That's our focus. Yeah, it's, I think the, the stumbling block for me or the sense that I got from from watching it, and this is sort of what I was saying about the brain damage like the probing scenes or whatever is this is somebody who's maybe into that kind of movie like into making that kind of movie that decides they want to make something emotionally driven but they're not really good at emotions they're or really not rendering emotions <laughs> um so like i'm i'm trying to think of a good analogy of like I don't know what some death metal musician that tries to write a really touching love sonnet like it's just not is that your strength necessarily yeah yeah, your previous three songs were about, you know, <laughs> nailing groupies, and now all of a sudden you're going to get all deep and candlelight and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Doesn't read as sincere. But it was all, like, it was all meant to be, it was mostly a, meant to be an emotion movie. Like, it, mostly it's just the expressions on our protagonist's face and his tortured love for his wife and trying to save her. Um, and I think... The, the way that the filmmaker decided they wanted to translate high emotion is like if things take longer it'll be more emotional or like we see his tortured face for let's let the scene go for two minutes too long then that will equal emotion it really didn't well honestly from a writing storytelling standpoint i don't know why the focus isn't the wife this is all happening to her but we focus on the husband for most of the movie Except for, you know, when she's naked or being assaulted or both. <laughs> uh, and I think the real sort of fatal blow to the movie is when we get to the devastating, super heavy, dark ending. And I feel nothing. Okay, I'm going to... I am going to i did not think I would be the one defending this. You're defending um, progeny. Here we go. I'm not... Okay, it's, it's going to be the bottom of my list. It's, it's pretty clear. Uh, maybe the one and a half things well okay so i kind of liked wilford brimley but i can't credit that as progeny i just like watching him talk sure uh i thought brad dorf was pretty good in it uh all the scenes that he was in i liked he he was like this guy it's like a psychiatrist who uh works with people who think they were uh, victims of ufo abductions and then the final scene where his wife is impregnated with this thing and our hero, who is a doctor, him and Brad Dorf, they get into sneak her into an operating room. And finally, as his last desperate 
a ch chance to save her to get this parasite out of her because it's he's cut her open it's not in her womb anymore it's like squirming you know, about somewhere and he says okay i'm gonna kill her and she can be dead for two and a half three minutes in that time this thing like the parasite will stop latching onto her and then i'll jump her heart back with the paddles um and and there's this scene where it's kind of building tension. We cut back to the clock, cut to him. Brad Dorf freaks out. He, he doesn't want to be bolts. part of it. Yeah. And then the hospital security guys kick down the door because they know he's there and his wife is dead. And it cuts to the clock and it's 20 minutes later and she's long dead and he didn't even get a chance to save her. That felt... Like that was a kind of a good Twilight Zone ending for me. Um, but him movie... being in prison and a light coming and him vanishing. So that part I was going to ask you about what happened because I really <laughs> think it should have just ended with that twenty-minute time jump and like bad luck guy, yeah. uh, the aliens be. Yeah, and like why would they want him? You would think the goal was the alien baby. Like, what? 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 It doesn't make sense again. Made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. And he also seemed to know that they were coming for him. Like, it, it was kind of like the Coen brothers stole that ending for the man who wasn't there. Honestly. <laughs> he just, like, walks out of prison into a UFO. Yeah. No, and again, I would I would love to ask the screenwriters if they have an answer for that. I just really feel like they didn't have the ending. I also have to say, look, I don't know anything. I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a doctor, believe it or not. But... Your opening incision that he makes on her is not what you would do for a C-section. That is when you're conducting an autopsy, not an operation. He fucking cuts that bitch open. Like, it's brutal. Yeah. And then the, 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 the security guards and the doctors and stuff kick open the door. And this woman is on the table with her stomach open. Yes. And they're yelling and stuff. Like, you probably, you're not supposed to be there. No. He's just get him when he's on his way out. I, I, this is a clean room, okay? <laughs> Let's just start coughing a lot. But um, that is not the only problem with progeny. I mean, it has a lot of problems here, but uh, I, I, I do think it does have its audience. Um, and I, I, I do have a guilty pleasure response with Yuzna. I think this is the wrong subject for him. I think he needs to stay with the goofy, over-the-top monster movies and, like, the serial killer, you know, unapologetically cheesy, campy uh, horror movies. Uh, this is just... I don't know. It's somehow too real for him. <laughs> Not that it's a real movie, but... <laughs> and, like, at the risk of sounding like a low-T beta cuck on this one, if you're going to make pregnancy body horror, you like, have a woman in the writer's room. Because yeah. it just seemed like it was, it was just a bunch of... Like, there's a lot of potential there. Um, the movie should have been about her. Very offensive. Pregnancy is body horror. <laughs> yeah. It's gone through. It could probably come up with some good stuff. But I don't know. It just felt like um, guys that were just out of their area. Yeah. No. Wouldn't it be cool? No, it wouldn't be. It would be horrifying. Go for horrifying, not cool. <laughs> okay. Um, I can't quite say it's a strength, but it was at least a moment in this boring movie where I felt something is in one of the flashback scenes she gets a probe up her nose oh. and in this age of post-COVID and having gotten a few <laughs> COVID tests up my nose that part, like, okay, that that strikes me as visceral. Yeah. 
No, I guess like the operation scenes and some of the stuff in the alien ship. I didn't like the weird or uh, her getting off on it. Sometimes they made me kind of uncomfortable, but maybe deliberately. I I didn't want to think of it as like some anime tentacle porn shit, but it really kind of pushed the low line there a few times. Well, so my sense of that is they were they were drugging her, chemicaling her, so that she was receptive it sexually. Yeah. Oh, also the alien design. It's something I might have to give a grudging respect to because they looked like the gray, like gray standard gray aliens. But at first, I thought they looked like the South Park version of standard gray <laughs> aliens. They looked really, really bad. But then we later learned that the, the human mind couldn't really comprehend exactly what they looked like, so they were just using what's sort of there in the cultural script. And I thought that was like, you know, that's clever adjacent. <laughs> huh, that's 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 some faint praise. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I didn't think I would be this movie's defender. I, yeah. I, well, I didn't I, think we'd spend sixteen minutes on it. Look at us go. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, maybe we should move on. What happened to him? Daydream's dead. Listen, you're getting your freedom back, okay? He said that wherever I went, he would find me walk right up to me, and I wouldn't be able to see him. Adrian is dead. He's not dead. He has figured out a way to be invisible. Are you okay? He's sitting in that chair. So Lee Winnell, for the longest time, was kind of uh, the guy that was writing the screenplays for uh, other directors to kind of make their hay on. He he wrote the original Saw, the original Insidious, James Wan, and he were collaborators a lot. And uh, he was mainly known as the guy who wrote the screenplays of those. But happily, I mean, I'm not a big Saw fan, but they're uh, working on Saw 11 as we speak. So... I'm sure he's made a lot of money off of the, the Saw franchise by itself. Not to say like Insidious and anything else, but he has started to direct movies now. And he did the third Insidious movie. He did a really cool sci-fi movie called Upgrade. And then he did this one, The Invisible Man. His Wolfman will be coming out later this year. Um, so it, it's interesting that he's m- sort of migrated from being known as a screenplay guy to being, I think, a pretty damn impressive director. The Invisible Man is interesting to me because, first of all, like, just not to breathe in the lead, it wall-to-wall works. It's a terrifying movie in a lot of ways. It could be renamed, in a way, Gaslighting the Movie. <laughs> it is so infuriating and so much of the movie is this one-way me- beating on the Elizabeth Moss character that I start to wonder if it becomes more unpleasant than entertaining at times. It reminds me of a movie from the 80s called The Entity, where this woman is being attacked by a ghost. 
in her house. Sorry, say that again, brother. Oh, just I'm not sure if I've seen it. Oh, it, Barbara Hershey is being attacked and raped by a ghost in her house, and nobody believes her. And it's a quite troubling movie from the 80s. And uh, this sort of almost feels like a, a modern play on that. And... Of course no one's going to believe that there's an invisible guy hunting you down. And, you know, she gets accused of killing her sister and beating a child and has her life destroyed. And it's all presented incredibly effectively. I was chewing my hand through the whole movie. Did I enjoy it? <laughs> That's sort of the thing that I started wrestling to. I do endorse the movie. I do like the movie. I do think that the repeat viewings on it are going to be uh, limited to me for the level of unpleasantness in it. That doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It means it's an incredibly effective one. And I do want to say there are some showcase sequences of action uh, when he takes on all the guards in the in the in the hospital and uh, it the the fight in the kitchen between Elizabeth Moss and the man who isn't there very very well handled but for all the special effects and for all the high concept of the movie it is the outrage that i feel that is sort of the tangible most memorable thing about the movie you feel Ugh, for the whole movie and that's effective but it's not a great place to be yeah i i thought it was pretty good this is uh, Invisible Man is one of the one of the two movies on this list that I had seen before, um, and before I'd seen it, I saw the I'd seen the um, preview, and there was there was a scene where she was in a police station looking at a wall, uh, or to assume the Invisible Man is there. But she's saying like, I really didn't want to watch it because I thought it would just be kind of a frustrating frame-up movie um like the, these just kind of get to me i find them a little bit boring uh this i didn't i was surprised that i liked it as much as i did uh this time around um i had forgotten but the very first scene where she's in bed with this guy and she's very quietly trying to sneak out of the house and you don't have to be told what their relationship is this is an abuse victim escaping from her abuser and it goes on for so long and again like all you see is her getting her bag you know turning off cameras and stuff but immediately you know what the stakes are without a word of dialogue Um, And so all of the things that I thought it was going to be, which were sort of pre-frustrating me, um, they mostly weren't there. I actually didn't like the act too that much when it was all the overt gaslighting, but that was more because it was just striking me as a little bit familiar, Um, you know, movies where people get framed by the perfect framer. It's like there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Um, But that didn't last as long as I was worried that it was going to last. The movie doesn't just sputter there and wallow. Um, It becomes interesting again. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I felt that the Elizabeth Moss character is... You're on side with her so completely. And she does have a good support system that is slowly whittled away from her through the course of the movie. I, I want to be able in some way to dismiss this character as like some kind of fake Stephen King villain but the really troubling thing about it is that I kind of believe this guy (laughs) like I 
he's evil, but he's not like a Stephen King villain evil. Like he's not evil. Like he's just like a sociopath. He's like a sociopath, domineering, abusive guy. So none of it. Like we don't really see him that much. He doesn't have too much dialogue, and we're still never really sure how much of the invisible manning was him or his brother because they were both in it together we learn yeah um but it wasn't like say the 1990s invisible man with kevin bacon where the invisible man serum turned him evil as soon as he became invisible he went mad yeah yeah which is i guess the original story right that's what i really like about the original invisible man how they don't you know sugarcoat his madness at all he he loses his shit and he does terrible things and uh Mm -hmm. that age as well and i i like that lee winnell sort of respected that idea of the invisible man but he's in a different place because he can choose when to be invisible or not in the other cases in hollow man in the original invisible man once the scientist has made themselves invisible, it can't be undone. They're stuck there, and that's part of what drives them. So you get the feeling this guy's been a sociopath his whole life, that he has groomed his brother to be his personal puppet, and that he was trying to groom his wife to be his secondary puppet, and that he cannot handle the rejection from her. And uh, he will happily destroy her life at the expense of his own because his ego can't handle it. And it seems over the top. It seems uh, like a uh, Stephen King. Stephen King wrote this book called Rose Matter, which is probably one of my least favorite of his books, where the 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 husband of the main character is trying to hunt her down in a very similar way. But he is so so evil that you're just like, okay, dial it back a fucking little. <laughs> like, come on, right? You know, he, in order to live in the real world, you you have to be able to function in society you can't have this like madness on your face at all times and he's really able to come across as sane and composed when he wants to which is what makes him so terrible although honestly like how many scenes does he get in the entire movie like how many scenes with dialogue two handful at the beginning and a handful at the end really yeah does he get any at the beginning? I thought oh, he, he just, he just attacks the car, really, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, he does the lot with very little. Uh, the actor that plays his brother, I also like um, quite a bit, too. His performance was really good. The, the Her... I didn't, didn't know what her relationship with that police officer was. Had he dated her sister, some such thing, or were they... Anyway, her police officer friend and his daughter, I thought they over-perfected them just a little bit for my taste. Um, that, that, you know, if they didn't go too far with the villains, they did maybe go a little bit too far with those two, but it wasn't a big deal. Right. No, I mean, for the most part, worked. It's, you liked them enough so that when they turned on Elizabeth Moth's character, it kind of hurt you a little <laughs> It. So, in that way, it was definitely effective. It works on on that level for sure. But <laughs> um, there were some other things that I liked, uh, just sort of stray things that I liked. One, she was outside in one scene, and you could see his breath. In you know, the, her husband was behind her, and there's no visible cues except you just like the puff of the cold air breath. It was really good and creepy. Uh, two, the creepy scenes were enhanced immeasurably by really, um, it's not that there wasn't ambient music, but it was really downplayed. So the scenes that were tense 
they not only was the thing like the antagonist invisible you could never be sure if it was even there yeah. but it was also silent it was a really quiet movie well, so I'm... a lot was done with like her performance was really good because she was reacting to no other actor and, and doing a good job of somebody that was reacting to it well the subtle of the the soundtrack her performance and also just the way they frame things like they're showing us more of the room than they need to a lot of the time <laughs> Why? Why are they doing that? Is there something there? It just it, it fucks with your nerves. And the music. Good. I I really do like the movie. Like I wasn't trying to talk shit about it at the beginning of the movie. Was, a lot has been made about Elizabeth Moss. She's grown up in Hollywood, and she's sort of like a a hot favorite these days. I think she's a really good actress. I've never been completely like, oh my god, bowled over by her. But the technical challenge of this role, I think, couldn't be underserved. <laughs> like. She has an entire fight sequence with the person who's not there. And when they shot it, it was a combination of, like, this robotic arm camera, which is doing a very controlled camera movement so that they can repeat it specifically again and again. So she has to hit these exact beats. And she's either in a room with nobody or in a room with a guy wrapped in, like, what looks like green packing tape. (laughs) And she has to have this terror on her face consistently and hit her marks consistently i think special effect movies are a uniquely next level challenge for actors because hitting these emotional beats i think in their own way would have been tough enough (laughs) right so i will i will definitely give elizabeth moss points for this but i still wait for that movie that convinces me that she is in fact the new meryl streep or whatever that everyone's hyping her to be uh, I, I'm on board for sure, but let's see what's next. Yeah, I I don't know. I I thought she was good in this. I don't think she's a generational talent or anything like that. I liked Mad Men well enough. I didn't see Handmaid's Tale. I'm not sure what else she's been in. Um, I guess she's been around forever. But I thought her her performance in this I thought was was quite good. Um, I think it would have been hard for somebody to deliver this performance. Yeah. Um, Another thing that I liked is when she was in the mental hospital and the invisible man came to kill her or whatever, and there's this fight that turned into a shootout with, I don't know how many (laughs) dozens of police officers. It seems like stormtroopers that kept rushing down the hall. I think they might have overdone that a little bit. But I did really like that after that, they released her. I mean, she wasn't out of the woods legally, but... You know, in so many horror movies, they go so far in not believing the victim of, you know, the improbable thing. Yeah. But enough people saw a disembodied gun flying around shooting people that, like, yeah, I mean, maybe we'll, we'll talk about the Invisible Man defense. <laughs> well, I also liked how the movie was playing, like, it, it, how far is she going to be taken until she actually legitimately snaps? Like having her sister's throat cut in front of her and being blamed for that is going to carry some psychological weight. And uh, they kind of, I think, wanted us to start to question it. But no, uh, she had a very clear vengeance plan, which goes into the third act of the movie. Which I have to say is satisfying. But man, after the first hour and 45 minutes, <laughs> what could be satisfying to 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 bring this to a, a conclusion, you know, there was no fall from which he could go that would be like, yeah, you motherfucker, <laughs> like, unless she literally kidnapped him and tortured him for, like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I like the ending 
Uh, it was satisfying. It was nice to see him bleed out while she was staring at him. I win. Passively. Or yeah. Look of victory. Uh, it wasn't as surprising as I think the movie thought it was. Agreed. I think the movie thought that we forgot that she had a spare Invisible Man technology suit that she had stashed in his closet, which is very obvious what was going to happen. Yeah. But it didn't that's one where it didn't need to be a twist I mean she could have said I'm going to go slit his throat um, and then done it and it would have been as satisfying Yeah, and Lee Winnell may have found himself a third franchise whether he meant to or not because in the world of the movie this is a suit that exists so presumably someone else can make an invisible suit and get into trouble you know <laughs> I don't think they need to bother Elizabeth Moss for a sequel, but if they wanted to franchise this, they probably could. Yeah, I I don't think it would be great, but I didn't think this would be great. I'm I'm not sure that I would say it was great, but it was good. Yeah. Um, Much better than I thought. If they were going to come out with an Invisible Man 2, I definitely would resist seeing it, but who knows, maybe it would surprise me. We gotta go! We gotta get out of here! We gotta go right now! Listen to me, Steve. No, you don't understand! We've gotta go! Go where? No, we gotta go! What the hell are you talking about? Steve, this is important. Go where? That's right. Go where? What happened in your room? Are you listening? What happened in your room is not an isolated incident. It is something that is happening everywhere to everyone. So, where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna run? Where are you going to hide? Nowhere. Because there's no one like you left. That's right. Oh, God. That's right. That's good. You're listening now. That's very good. Okay. Now, I know you're frightened, Steve. I know you're scared. That's okay. I understand that. You're confused. Let me tell you something, Steve. Let me tell you something. All that anger. All that fear, all that confusion, it's gonna melt away. It's gonna go away, Steve. It's gonna go away. You go to sleep. You wake up. It's very simple. In the morning, you wake up. You feel wonderful. We will be together. We're connected. We're close. So for me, the best version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is the 1978 one with uh, Donald Sutherland and, and Leonard Nimoy and Jeff Goldblum. Like, I just think that 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 Kaufman version of it is just so charged with paranoia and so well handled. So, you know, just perfectly handled it again, like a lot of great horror movies. You almost wonder, do they need to do it yet again? And in 1993, Abel Ferreira, who's mainly known for weird, dark art house movies, uh, decides, yeah, we're going to do it in 1993. And, um, I have very clear memories. I saw this movie at Place Riel in 1993. I felt like I was all grown up going to see movies <laughs> all by myself without my mommy or daddy with me, you know, like, and I will start with the biased opinion that in 1993, I thought this movie was amazing. In 2024, I do not think that this movie is amazing. But I still hold a lot of residual affection for it. And I don't think it sucks. I think it's actually a decent swing at Body Snatchers. Is it necessary? Well, no. (laughs) But uh, 
I actually enjoyed revisiting it. It it kind of took me back to the early '90s and where and who I was at that time, and uh, where movies were at that time. CGI hadn't fully arrived yet. Like this was the same year as Jurassic Park, <laughs> so all of the effects are still practical and green screen and. The way the character beats are handled is all that very specific 90s style that when I rooted my sort of love of movies was just what I got all of the time. What I'm saying is that I'm going to oversell my praise of Body Snatchers. I really like it, but I'll recognize that it's good, not great. But in, I, I, I feel kind of like I have this affection, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell it like it's great. A young family is staying at a military base, uh, but they're not part of the military specifically. The father's a scientist. He's got a new wife uh, and a, a young son with that wife and a teenage daughter who's not happy about moving constantly and living this military lifestyle and having to reset herself. But I like that this sort of tale of supernatural conformity starts at a military base, which is full of its own sort of rule sets and conformity on its own. And I don't think that that's accidental. And... In typical Body Snatchers form, we get to know the characters at the beginning of the show, and as the movie progresses, we notice a change, first in some of the peripheral background characters, and then in some of our main characters. And a snowball effect happens, where it gets worse and worse and worse, until we reach sort of the peak of the global catastrophe that is very quietly unfolding. No, this is not the best Body Snatchers movie, but I think it's absolutely worth your time. And you know what? I think the story is strong enough that generationally, if they wanted to make one every 10 or 20 years, the story does hold it. But it's going to be a lot of work to beat the Philip Kaufman version of it. Uh, I like Abel Ferreira, but I wouldn't say this is an honest reflection of his work. He usually does, you know... <laughs> Things like King of New York or The Addiction or uh, Dangerous Game, these weird shaky cam art house, uh, like low budget movies that have a way better cast than they deserve because Abel Ferreira somehow carries weight somehow in the artistic community. And this seems like one of the more like sellout, make a buck movies. But I will controversially say it's one of my preferred Abel Ferreira joints. <laughs> I will take this over The Bad Lieutenant. Thank you very much. Um, that's a minority opinion, but I'm going to give a blushing thumbs up to Body Snatchers. Where are you at? Yeah, I, I, I'm similar. Uh, you say that you remember seeing it at Class Real. I'm not sure if you remember that I was there as well. Oh, were you? Uh, I can't... I, I, yeah. <laughs> sorry, brother. Um, <laughs> it was a long time ago. I remember we shared a laugh at, at the scene where Gabrielle Anwar asked our hero if he'd ever killed somebody. And he That's said, right, Kuwait. That's right. Uh, that... Which, that, that line really didn't age particularly well, but... Uh, How appropriate movie... that it was you that was with me at Plas Real for that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I had a weird reaction. So when you gave me the these DVDs, uh, you might have told me that it was on this list months ago when you gave me the DVDs I put it in my uh, machine and this movie Wolven popped up and I was like there's no way that Larry made me watch the movie Wolven for this so I'm guessing that it might be a flippable DVD I flipped it and it said on the other side Body Snatchers and I was like yes I love this movie uh, and I was thinking it would be the 1978 one and then it was the 1990s one I was like well 
I'll give it a shot, see how I feel. Uh, it was the it's the second best of the three body snatchers movies. I was I will say that. There's um, four I, of them now, I, but yes, I still stand by no. you're correct. Um I thought it was pretty good. There was there were definitely some things that I liked about it. The performances were really good. I think across the board, um, the early 90s, maybe in 92, 93, was really the years of Gabrielle Anwar. I, I don't know why she stopped making movies. And then she came back for that TV series Burn Notice sometime later. Um, but she was our protagonist, and I thought she did a good job. Uh, her father... It was played by the guy that played McManus in Oz, and I was Terry Kinney is the name of the actor. Um, He he he's a really good actor. His scenes were all good. Um, Meg Tilly, amazing. uh, Sort of forgotten (laughs) her her scene about like, where are you gonna go? Listen to me. Where are you gonna go? One hundred percent the best scene in the movie. She's amazing. For sure. Yeah. Um, So. All, all of that I thought was pretty good uh, not pretty good, I thought it, that was all good the thing that the 78 one had that this one didn't was tension, like for some reason it seemed like they were a family on a base where we kind of knew there would be body snatchers because that's the title of the movie and about the, maybe the halfway point, everybody's a body snatcher and there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of build up to that, like I it was good performances and I liked the premise um, weirdly didn't like Forrest Whitaker's parts I don't blame him he's a good actor he, he sort of had a 90s type character he went crazy in a very 90s cinema way it was basically a cameo and I think he was trying to make his, the best he could out of it maybe overplayed it but I will never say no to Forrest Whitaker I really like that dude So, it, and weirdly Forrest Whitaker I think I I would say he maybe chewed the scenery a little bit, um, but the the head of the base played by Arlie Ermey had a weirdly subdued performance by his standards because he usually kind of you know goes hard especially when he's playing a military he was not yet again playing the drill sergeant so points mm-hmm. points yeah and I thought he was good and and the woman that played his daughter she was on nine hundred two and oh I don't know she was like a really a figure in the 90s and she kind of dropped off. I think she was in Child's Play 2. I remember her. Um, (laughs) Everybody knows Child's Play 2, don't they, Matt? Come on. Yeah, obviously. That was, that all was good. Uh, I liked the scenes where they were figuring out that they could fool the body snatchers. I was getting kind of weird Shaun of the Dead vibes, even though this came out before Shaun of the Dead, but when they were during the zombie apocalypse and they were all pretending, pretending. to be zombies um, it kind of reminded me of that uh, it, there was a one scene that I thought was really bad where they were testing the guy uh, of the body snatchers and he was pretending to have been body snatched and then the one guy said I fucked your girlfriend yeah. and then he didn't react and then they're like okay you passed the test <laughs> yeah. like, no, that, that was a little sloppy I agree but there are other things that aren't sloppy I like that the the scene where Gabriel Amoir is in the tub and the tentacles come down and start to change her, they put the pod in the ceiling above her. And as it takes form of her body, the weight of the body 
sinks it through the ceiling and that's what wakes her up it's a complete like luck complete like nothing she did or someone else did saved her it was just i I like that sort of detail like we are so helpless to this apocalypse like i will take a zombie apocalypse over the body snatchers because like you're fucked (laughs) well i was actually this one was making me think more that maybe the body snatchers aren't the bad guys in this uh like i think that was one of the movie's points weirdly because when they escaped in the in the um military helicopter and they were firing missiles into the into these army trucks that are going out with these pods and she has a a really bad voiceover actually this movie also began and ended with voiceover that i didn't like i could have done without it it was a last minute uh studio decision um, but she was talking about like how it felt good to kill them, and you know they still had their their anger and their rage, and it's what made them human. Um, there was actually quite a lot of lines, little plants like that throughout, where they talked about emotion, but all of the emotions were kind of like, is that really a great emotion? Like if it's if it's our anger and our vengeance that make us human, are we the better species? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think the movie was trying to get too philosophical necessarily, but like, uh, fear is a primal component to our makeup, but uh, sometimes it actually hurts us more than it helps us, but uh, we need it, it's sort of part of who we are, (coughs) but... I think that, uh, you know, the very original one was about sort of communism and the 70s was sort of the loss of identity. This one didn't really take a track. It was just body snatchers. And I think that it would have been more interesting if maybe they pushed that a little bit harder, what you were talking about. But it seemed like the body snatchers weren't the same. As much as Meg Tilly says, we'll still be together, we'll still be who we are, you just won't be saddled by emotions. They seem to get pissed off when people call them out, and they seem to kill the with impunity. If if she is still fundamentally the same person, she shouldn't be okay with killing her husband or kid, right? Well, no, she's not. So this is this is something. One of the the shots in the movie that I thought was one of the better ones when the little overly precocious child goes up to her. She's asleep, but then her face like kind of melts like she's become a husk right so it crumbles away she's not the same person she's dead it's just it's a pod that takes her form um so like the the people are all like it's a genocide it's not them getting possessed they're gone like you can do whatever you want to the pods they're not coming back yeah so yeah i don't think they're the good guys necessarily in that in that reading of things (laughs) But I, I mean, I, they don't do anything bad to, like, once all the humans are dead, there's not going to be, like, wars and rapes and genocides amongst the body snatchers, right. you know, like, um, and that the, they give a speech to that effect about unity, um, which I'm not saying, like, you know, if, if the body snatching was happening here I would certainly try to resist them I just think from like an objective point of view I don't necessarily think that they're the bad guys <laughs> which is another reason why I think setting it in a military base is an American imperialist army military base yeah. is not a bad setting for it because oh. it kind of does beg that question very deliberate 
Uh, and, and this time watching the movie, I noticed a, a, a kind of sad thing. When the kid first clocks that there's something, well, he knows his mom's off. And uh, before anyone else, he knows. He has a scene where he's making a run from the base. And one of the uh, army guys sort of scoops him up and calms him down and takes him home. And, of course, he ends up getting potted shortly thereafter. <laughs> it's just like, there's some real pathos to that once you've seen the movie and know where it's going. <laughs> That's this well-meaning character. Because the guy who stops him is not a pod person. He's just, whoa, whoa, no, well, where are you going, champ? Because hmm? it's, it's our handsome male lead and yeah. his best buddy. Yeah. So, I don't know. It, it, it works better than, than it... I. Like I, I thought I was going to be like just shamefacedly endorsing it, or maybe uh, giving a positive review ma- mainly on my memory of it. But I did legitimately enjoy revisiting it. But I came in a little bit hesitant because <laughs> you know? a lot of shit that I loved in the early nineties yeah. uh, doesn't hold up anymore. But <laughs> I, I think without nostalgia, it wouldn't be quite as good. Because um, I try to think like who I would recommend this to. Or I mentioned earlier that I had recommended Vivarium, which I don't think I would recommend to very many people um, because I ended up having to defend it. Um, this one, I don't think I would even recommend. Like, it, it wasn't... If you haven't seen it and didn't like it already, there's probably no reason to watch it. You think they missed the window? Like, <laughs> I Yeah, I think that's a better way to put it than I did. Yeah, I, if I was recommending a body snatchers movie it would be the 70s one because yeah. it's it's the superior movie this it's good it's good all the way through i i don't even really have any criticisms in fact i have fewer complaints about this than i do about at least one movie that ranks higher than it um but i don't know it's it's not as impactful as as it could be so like it's good yeah. it's solid i'm glad i saw it I endorse it. I think that it's worth a shot. Always go with the '78 version, but if you, you know, want another version of the of Body Snatchers, this is worth your time. Uh, Nicole Kidman did one called The Invasion, which is very dismissible as well. I would say this is significantly better than that. But um, oh, uh, also, I read the Body Snatchers novel not too long ago, and I would say this is better than the novel. Oh, nice. Okay, high praise indeed. So. Um, yeah, it's not just nostalgia or, or, or member berries. I, I do think it's worth your time, but maybe for a specific audience. <laughs> good enough? Yeah, Check good. this out. It's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation. Anything interesting in there? No. Sharks have teeth like that. It's not possible. You can't crossbreed different species. What is it? The soldiers on the last expedition. They went crazy. Or something in here killed them. Something's come through the fence. Through the fence? We have to go back. I can't go back. We can camp here tonight. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. So Alex Garland, uh, the writer-director of Annihilation, although this is based off of a novel, really interesting guy. I first clocked him because he wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later, which I, of course, 
am a huge fan of. Um, he wrote the new version of Dread, and he wrote and directed Ex Machina, this, and he made a movie subsequent to this called Men, which I just can't quite get my head around. But there's something about this guy's work, like uh, this Annihilation, it seems like a cross between H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space and at least in vibe, maybe something like 2001 A Space Odyssey? <laughs> I, For me, it was much more like, do you remember a movie from the early 2000s, Solaris? Yeah. Which is based off of a Soviet era, I think it was a novel and then a, a, a movie, but like an 18-hour movie. Yeah. Um, and then um, there's another movie called the stalker it's it's also tarkovsky um this had super tarkovsky vibes for me i have not seen stalker i have seen both versions of solaris and i controversially prefer soderbergs but (laughs) (laughs) i didn't like soderbergs but um you couldn't i mean the the original one i watch the whole thing it just goes on for so long so this was nice in that it was i don't know about two hours maybe a little over two hours but it had this ponderous feel of a soviet era sci-fi movie but not in a bad way at all um actually i watched it the same day i watched Varium, which was yesterday and both of them it, they had a similar quality uh, this one i i don't think it was aggressively boring aggressively effectively boring like Bavarium but it was slow it, the scenes really took their time um, and I think to great effect well and it made when things happened the impact of them quite strong mm-hmm. um, Natalie Portman's husband had been sent into this anomaly called the Shimmer which was brought to us from outer space basically a comet lands and it starts this environmental orb that's growing exponentially and presumably will eventually swallow the entire earth and every well that's what they say yeah right they 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 have a the military has a prediction how long it's going to take yeah so they've been sending military teams in to see what they can see but until oscar isaac comes out nothing that went in has come out oscar isaac was married to natalie portman had been missing for a long time and he comes back physically and it seems emotionally completely changed and and he doesn't he also doesn't come back in that he walks out of the shimmer he appears in their house yeah he's just home (laughs) yeah uh so and the movie just spends the first act is just all questions and no answers and natalie portman uh he's her husband is in a hospital clinging to life all of his organs are failing so she ends up being sent with a scientific team this time all females all the other teams have been males i don't know if they're expecting this might be different but they're not going in militarily they're going in scientifically and they're all females will the results be different so she well, and this, so that was, sorry that was just like a nice little touch for me because i might have missed something but they didn't go in because they were all women like i thought they just happened to be all women well, it's just a different group than the, the previous groups were all military. There might have been women with them too, but they weren't all specifically women. I don't know if they, I don't think it was a plot point that they specifically decided to send all women, but it's interesting that there's five of them and they're all female anyway. Yeah, no, but I think that was a, like a, a an interesting director's choice because if it was a, if it was five men that they had sent in, nobody would say anything. Yeah. 
and it's five women and and like in the movie nobody says anything and i i just think that was a nice like it it never gets like annoyingly girl power about it and it never says you know maybe if it's women they'll respond differently that just happens to be who this team is which I, i like that I think how much you like the movie will sort of weigh on how much you want clear answers from things. Like, right away, when they enter the Shimmer, we cut to, they wake up the next morning, or as their rations tell them, three days later, and they have no memory of anything that happened. And that gap is never explained. They spend three days in the Shimmer, we don't see it, and they don't remember it. <laughs> and if you're waiting for that plot point to, to, to you know, bear fruit, it's not going to... <laughs> But in a way, it sort of adds to the a disjointed dreamlight quality. Plus, when they find out that environmentally everything, right down to the chromosomes, is being affected to every plant, every animal, and themselves included. And to some some really great effect, because a lot of this, a lot of it's really slow paced. As I said, there are a couple of monstery moments. There's one. They, there's one woman gets attacked by this giant crocodile, which I really liked. Um, except, um, speaking of uh, movies where some things bugged me, uh, even though I, I give this high praise, the crocodile fucking roared. We did it <laughs> about a year or so back, and that was one of my complaints on the crocs, crocs and kids. That's right. That we did. Crocodiles don't fucking roar. Now this one, you could say, well. Um, it's mutated. Animals are getting their DNA mashed up. And yeah. There's a truly horrific scene of this bear that's got a skull head, and when it opens its mouth, it makes the screaming sound of this woman that it had killed. So I, I almost the put a- Annihilation in the best, cat, like on my list of the best of horror of the 20 teens, just because of the bear scene. It, I mean, yeah. it's bad enough that these women are tied to a chair and this monstrous bear walks into the room. But when it screams, it's emanating the death cry of their friend. <laughs> like, it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, when it's it's like kind of Jurassic Park energy of it, like sniffing around them. Because yeah. I don't know if it has eyes. It has a skull for a head, not like a bear's head so i don't know the sense in which it can sense them or how it can sense them it wants to kill them and we know it doesn't mind killing them because it killed (laughs) at least one maybe we think for a while two of them um but yeah it was it's a really tense scene uh and again uh you don't know what you're going to get every now and then there'll be a scene of pure nightmare fuel there's a scene where they find the video of the previous military team and oscar isaac cuts this dude's belly open and shows us his intestines squirming like a snake inside of him and the whole time he's doing it the guy is looking at him with something like gratitude it's very very uncomfortable yeah (laughs) and you just don't know what you're gonna see from scene to scene in this movie which is its strength and for some people, it's weakness. I really liked it about it, but uh, it, it, it's complete lack of identity, both of genre and the sort of focused storytelling kind of bucks some people off. Well, so I think part of the reason is this movie is 2018, so it's out just between the two final Avengers movies, the Infinity War, okay. or whatever. Like, this is, this is sort of peak marvel era 
um, and it, it, it's like a slow burn movie, and it, like I'm just I'm trying to figure out why it flopped as badly as it did because um, like, this is another one that I went looking for reviews after I watched it because I wasn't really sure how I had never heard of this before. How I think it was well reviewed. It just didn't make money. <laughs> I think it was impeccably reviewed. Like everybody that saw it liked it, but nobody wanted to see it. And it was even released in Asia too. Like it could have gotten the Asian market, but it lost money everywhere it went. Um, which is a crying shame because it's it's a terrific movie well the same thing happened with Dread uh, that Dread movie he wrote was way better than it had any business being and it was the Dread movie that everyone wanted and nobody showed up for it it's bizarre <laughs> so it must be his curse uh, Jennifer Jason Lee shows up in this movie I've always liked Jennifer Jason Lee I feel like I've grown up watching Jennifer Jason Lee in, in movies but uh, she's interesting, and she's kind of the leader of the group, but she doesn't seem that interested in leading the group. Like, she's going here for her own reasons, and everybody else is just kind of a tag-along. And yet, for yeah, all of that... she's leading insofar as she's walking ahead of everybody. That's right. But in another movie, or a weaker movie, she'd be some kind of secondary villain or someone we didn't like. But that never really comes up. Like, we get where she's coming from. And I kind of like that about it. And actually, the entire supporting cast was great. Um, Michelle Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson. I can't remember who played Shepard. Uh, Sorry, uh, I made the same mistake you did. You said Michelle Rodriguez. It's uh, the the woman who goes all crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not Michelle Rodriguez. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure. I'm on the IMDb page here. Oh, Gina, pardon me, Gina Rodriguez. Uh, anyway, uh, but the look and vibe of her was so similar I, my, my brain did the same thing sorry I just wanted to catch that sorry no that's fine um, but anyway the, all of the performances in the cast were really good um, I I don't I'm not a really big Natalie Portman fan I, and I thought she was serviceable um, I think she, she's she's the only one that I think could be recast and the movie wouldn't be hurt um, <laughs> at the risk of being highly criticized I think Natalie Portman is just good as an actress. I don't think she's amazing. Sorry, everybody else in the world. <laughs> but um, the the I was still like she's your POV character, so she doesn't need to be the most interesting one. But the dynamics with her and the other members of the team were all good. Um, the Tessa Thompson character, her exit from the film was it was weird because it was kind of body horror-ish. But it seemed like it was something was happening on her own terms. Like, it it was one of my favorite shots of the movie, because they went into this building and nature's acting all weird inside the shimmer, and there are these trees that have grown up in human form, but it's not like the trunk of a tree is in the shape of a human, it's like all the branches have kind of grown together in a way that like silhouettes a human form. Um, which the shot is wonderful. It's yeah. it's visually um, um, really powerful. But we see her arm, and she seems to be sprouting from her arm. So assume that she goes off to mutate into a human tree. And she seems okay with it. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is fighting it and terrified, and at some point she just seems to accept it. And they, fighting it might be the problem, you guys, especially if it is inevitable. 
here's something that might be a flaw in the movie. And by the way, I really like this movie. I don't know if that came across. I'm a big fan. Um, watching it again for the podcast, I had a whole, totally different memory of the ending of the movie. <laughs> like, uh, there's a very bizarre confrontation that Natalie Portman has with the, quote, source of the shimmer. And I don't even know how to articulate the exchange that happens between them. But my memory of the movie was that, like, she came out of the shimmer and uh, she and her husband uh, acknowledged that they weren't who they were or completely different entities than they were when they entered it, but that the shimmer was still there. That was my memory. Watching it again, no, she seems to have undone the shimmer. (laughs) Well, yeah, so when she has her final scene with the shimmer... um, so she's made her way to this lighthouse and it was the source of everything and she encounters the same thing that her husband had encountered where like this figure mutated into being kind of a double and so she ended up her husband had committed suicide with a phosphorus grenade he he put it in his hands and pulled out the pin and this thing that she's seeing is it hasn't quite mutated into her, but everything she does, it mirrors exactly. And so she gives it the, the phosphorus grenade and pulls out the pin. It starts on fire, then it goes back to the source and it spreads the fire everywhere that it goes. Yeah. And I think that's what ends up killing whatever... The anomaly. You can't even say it was a consciousness, but the source of it or the root of it just it dies but from there. Again, I guess I'd been sort of seated in this sort of root idea of the terror and inevitability of change. You know, you don't want to grow old and die, but that's going to happen. So, uh, and in a way, I guess I thought that was sort of the source seed. It's sort of like I say, color out of space. I haven't read the source novel, so maybe that would help clarify things for me. So it seems weird that in an, they gave gave us that kind of positive Natalie Portman even though she changed fundamentally who she was did in whatever end the shimmer so I I read it slightly differently okay um again very similar to my reading of Vivarium which is you know that these things whatever they're demons or UFOs or whatever probably not demons but they're not evil they're just doing their part in the life cycle it's just what they do they're no more evil than a cuckoo is um there's a long scene at the end when she's getting grilled by the military people um and it's you know they're asking her what did it want she's like i don't think it wanted anything like it it was basically just a plant um so the destroying it isn't a happy ending or it's not a sad ending it's just an ending like yeah. the, you know if it had killed all life on earth and replaced it with a different kind of life it's just different at this point it's still it's just a dramatically large plot point for me to have completely (laughs) forgotten about it seems strange to me (laughs) um another interesting thing this is this is very random um i'm jumping topics but you mentioned uh sonoya mizuno um because i I looked this up on IMDb after I saw it. I'm like, where was she in it? Because I I know her. I liked her a lot in Ex Machina, and I was trying to remember. Was there a Japanese woman in this? And I she was doing remember. mirroring, right? 
Yeah, and she had that scene with Oscar Isaac in Ex Machina where he was dancing and she was mirroring him. I think she just, the actor just has a supernatural ability to mirror other actors. I assumed they had done that with CG in Ex Machina, but now I'm thinking she's just like an extremely talented body performer. Well, it does seem to be part of the Shimmer thing too. There's a scene earlier when they're in there where they see those two deer come out of the woods and their motions are completely matched like even when they're startled and run away they startle and run away exactly identically like and this is we're gonna come to my biggest complaint that i have about annihilation which is one of those things that you never have to know unless you go to the imdb page uh and notice that natalie portman's character lena her name is lena double and Mm. Like really? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I, I totally missed that. that. I'm happy to say. So thanks for pointing that, that out to me. Seems like you know, <laughs> in Family Guy, when Brian writes his terrible scripts, and he's got a character named John Everyman. Yeah, <laughs> nailed it. Nailed it. No, because there, there was a lot of doubling in it. There were the two deer. There were her and Oscar Isaac. Because the the ending. I think it's a little ambiguous about whether it's even her anymore when yeah. she comes out uh, because they seem to be familiar with each other. Um, but you probably didn't need to give her the last name double. No, no, you definitely didn't. I also wondered why they spent so much time with the fact that she had an affair, I, if you can call it an affair, while her husband was missing for a year. And she seemed to be really feeling bad and guilty about that. I don't, I don't know what that contributed to the movie necessarily. So I think I was trying to figure that out, too. And I think there's something not I think um, much in the same way that Vivarium opens with nature documentaries of a cuckoo. Annihilation opens with her giving a lecture on cancer cells and how they just keep reproducing and reproducing. And that's essentially what the shimmer is. It's just this the DNA just keeps reproducing and reproducing irrespective of species. But there was this scene when the guy that she had had the affair with basically told her that everything that she did was to destroy things. Like she, you know, she cheated on her husband. She was doing things to his marriage. And I think, and there was like other characters that, the the, um, the leader, who's the actor that played her, you were just talking about her. Kind of Jason Lee? Yeah, she had cancer. Yeah. Uh, and also Shepard had lost a daughter to cancer, so obviously cancer is... A theme. Beyond theme at this point. Yeah. Um, so I guess what she had done to her and this other guy's marriage was this kind of doubling of actions, and it was maybe cancerous in its effect socially. Hmm. Um, I, I'm... I'm I think it could have been cut. I don't think they needed it. It felt extraneous to me. It didn't, for me, need to be there. But but I have a feeling if you ask the writer or director, they would have included it for a reason. It yeah. would have something to do with this. No, I have a measure of faith in the same thing. Have you seen Men, the movie he did following this? Yeah, I actually saw it at the theater when I was kind of new to Calgary. I, I um, cannot I, make heads or tails of that fucking movie. <laughs> so. I kind of liked it, but kind of disliked it at the same time. Yeah. It it also had some pretty impressive visual scenes, and it's also, I think, at its strongest when it was being kind of slow and atmospheric. Well, I'm on board. Like, <laughs> whatever Garland puts his name to it, be it a director or a screenplay, I, I'm going to check it out. And... uh 
if you haven't seen Annihilation. It is a very distinct, unique piece. And uh, obviously, more people need to see it. For some reason, it just it bombed hard, and it did not deserve to. I, I think it's going to age well. Yeah. I think it's going to be remembered as a, a, a really good movie that didn't get its due. It's so weird, because Ex Machina was embraced. Everyone seemed to like that. And that was kind of not an easy meal either. I don't know why that worked and this didn't, but... It just must have been bad luck. Like yeah. Bad, t- bad timing. I can't think of anything else. Yeah. Oh, well. At least we liked it. That's the important thing. Yeah. Mr. Matthew Risling, that was six sci-fi horror movies. Sci-fi horror enough, damn it. Uh, re- reviewed. Uh, what was your least favorite, and why? He says, fully knowing the answer. Yeah, this is this is the part where I'm quite certain we're not going to go zero for six. Uh, I, I'm going to preface this by saying this is one of the toughest lists that I've had to rank because basically, last place is quite obvious. And then I've kind of got a three-way tie for the next three, <laughs> a two-way tie for the lead. Yeah. Um, nothing in it was bad, like it, except for one. Like everything had its strengths and had its weaknesses. So, um, as I give this ranking, I there could be a lot of movement on on things on this list. So I just this, this is, is what the rank is today. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to keep you out of suspense. Uh, Progeny goes in sixth place. What? I weirdly liked it more than you did, it sounds like, (laughs) and I didn't like it. Uh, Definitely do not recommend. Um, Yeah, that's Progeny. Um, All the way down in fifth. I'm sorry, guys. I got to put it here. Uh, You're not a bad movie, Body Snatchers, but you're on a tough list. And like I said because they're so even to me I'm going to have to my judgment is could I recommend this to somebody and I, I probably wouldn't recommend The Body Snatchers it was it was a good experience I've had twice now and you know that's enough I absolutely would in the 90s <laughs> yeah yeah um, number four Invisible Man which again I think was a solid movie um I, I did drag a little bit in the framing her and people think she's crazy scenes. It's just a little bit too familiar for me. Um, but I, I also think Invisible Man might be the biggest crowd pleaser of all of these movies. Might weirdly be the one that I would recommend to the most people. Number three, controversially, Underwater. Um, it was just a lot of fun to watch. Um, that's it. I, I don't think it needed the Cthulhu monster. In fact, I don't even think it needed monsters. Um, but it was a tense movie. It was a fun movie. I liked it. Um, number two and number one, I could go either way for these. Number two, I'm going to put Vivarium, um, which I think it stuck with me more than any of the other movies on this list. In fact, I know it stuck with me more. Uh, but certainly I couldn't 
recommend it to somebody with like annihilation or I, I mean I recommended it to one person and ended up defending it to them. <laughs> um, annihilation I think is just it's just a great movie yeah. um, I, I would tell a lot of people to go watch it and I think you listeners out there in podcast land if you haven't seen annihilation even though we've spoiled a lot i think you would just get a lot out of it yeah yeah that's my list that's a really good list man and again honestly if the bottom is where the bottom is and the top is where the top is i wasn't going to really have an issue with your list uh um but no we didn't agree on all of it but yeah yeah progeny is the the least of these this season opened with an episode just on the subject of alien abduction and my least favorite one of those the the fourth kind i would still probably put ahead of this so maybe the pool was a little bit poisoned by the fact that i watched six better versions of this story just earlier this year but no progeny's low on the list even brian used no apologists this one i don't know you guys (laughs) Uh, staying in agreement with you as much as I did love it in 1993. It's so cool that you and I saw that in the theater. I wish I'd remembered that earlier, but when you said it, it all clicked back into place. (laughs) Body Snatchers is in fifth place. I think it deserves to be in fifth place, but I do have a lot of affection for it. I really do. So, um... You know, if if you heard the review, if you like the story, if you grew up in the 90s, there is something here for you. <laughs> so, let's, let's keep going there. And now we're going to start to disagree a little bit. In fourth place, maybe unkindly, Vivarium. Uh, I, I find the movie fascinating. There's a lot to it. But there's also a conscious, deliberate unpleasantness to it. And I think that's going to hurt the repeat viewing and uh, it's going to distance a lot of, you know, people who are looking for sci-fi thrills and chills. This is a much more meditative sort of, like I say, twilight zone more towards the sci-fi than the horror. But in a weird way that makes those isolated moments of horror when they happen kind of have a little more stank on them. (laughs) So I do really like it. I do think it is worth a day in court. I just don't think it's going to be for everyone. (laughs) So it was tough. Uh, in third place, and I thought this is the one that everyone thought would be higher or should be higher, is where I'm putting The Invisible Man. Um, I think it wall-to-wall works. Like, there's not a lot wrong technically, and the conceit of how they modernize The Invisible Man is really strong. The issues that they're playing with in the age of Me Too and, and the victimization of women, all of these notes are note-perfect, but the movie is exceedingly unpleasant. And uh, the, that that I, I like fun horror movies. There's... This one's less fun to me, (laughs) if that makes sense. Uh, In second place, perhaps overperforming, Underwater. It is what it is, but it's really good at being what it is. And I, I went back and forth on The Invisible Man and Underwater, and... At the end of the day, I'm going to watch Underwater more than I watch Invisible Man. I, I, I just had more fun with it. So I put it in second place. The best movie on this list was Annihilation. And I knew that when I put the list in your hand. <laughs> but like, uh, well, it was like made up of movies. Well, I didn't know you were going to do this list when I made it up. But I try to balance it. There's good, there's bad, there's a, you know. If I give a list of all shit, it's going to be a miserable experience for my guest. But if they're all great, I'm going to kind of make it unnecessarily difficult and possibly poison the pool of other episodes. So I split the difference between Bizarre Spectacle and... And movies that I just wanted to get Matt's thoughts on. Vivarium, 
and Annihilation I was very interested in picking your brains about. And I knew that Underwater and Progeny we would have fun talking about at least. (laughs) No, that's my list, man. Uh, Annihilation is number one quite comfortably, I think in this batch but yeah, a surprisingly it, strong list of movies once again hopefully next time i assign you a batch of movies you'll be less reticent about watching <laughs> so it's not that i was reticent about watching your movies i just not a huge movie watcher right so that's why doing rank and review is a nice experience for me uh, it's when it's most of the movies that i watch in a year is for this podcast <laughs> um <laughs> Well, five and five out of six is pretty good, or even five and a half almost out of six. <laughs> no, I, I I appreciated this list quite a lot. Uh, I think I liked the last one too, or the last one was fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. they weren't all good. Um, but no, pound for pound, I think this is one of the better lists you've given me. It's it's similar, I think, to the cult one where I didn't know a lot of this, um, and there were some some things that really stuck with me. It's nice to be pleasantly surprised instead of unpleasantly, you know? <laughs> so. Yes, definitely. Well, I don't know. I, I had a lot of fun with this. We should do it again sometime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, come to Calgary. Yes, sir. Shall do. Take care, Albertan. <laughs> All right. And so it was that another fun-filled episode of Rankin Review comes to an end. I know, I'm sad too, we're all sad. But, you know, go to the website, rankinreview.ca, and check out some vintage R&R. Um, introduce the show to your friends, you know, we, we're going to get through this together. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking about remakes, hopefully, in the next episode, so look forward to that. Send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com, that's R-A-N-K-N. R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com The website is rankingreview.ca And um, yeah, if you need something to fill your ears with check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show Check out the Terror Table Podcast And go forward with your day knowing that host and random Canadian Larry Parsons is a fan and a friend if you want one